I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Gail Laridan from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she has written a most interesting book called All the Wild and Holy, A Life of Eunice Williams, 1696 to 1785. Eunice Williams was a young Puritan girl who was kidnapped by Native Americans at age seven and, when given the opportunity, refused to return to her Puritan family. Then, I'll be taking a look at an essay that caused quite a stir when it was published back in 1991. It was in the Atlantic Monthly and got them more response than anything they'd published for decades by Dana Joya, called Can Poetry Matter? So stick around. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today comes to us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Gail Laridan. And she has a very interesting new book called All the Wild and Holy, A Life of Eunice Williams, 1696 to 1785. Gail has an interesting background. She helped organize the first National Women's Multicultural Poetry Festival back in the mid-70s, and she also has created a high school curriculum that uses 20th century American poetry to teach about gender, class, and race, and she's also an anti-war activist, so a lot of interesting things there and a very interesting book, so Gail, I'm so glad we finally got the computer working properly to connect us. Yeah, me too. It's nice to see you. (laughs) And uh, why don't don't we... um, Start with, uh, I'd like to ask you, in terms of the book, how did you decide uh, to write about, when I first saw the book, I'm thinking, who in the world is Eunice Williams? How did you decide to write about Eunice Williams? Well, um, purely by accident, as a matter of fact, I was uh, hired by the, uh, I was living in Amherst, Massachusetts at the time, and I was hired by the local NPR station to do some research Uh, for them on some programming they wanted to do. And that took me up to the historical Deerfield Library. Um, And when process of doing the research, I kept coming across this phrase, Eunice Williams, Eunice Williams. And why didn't Eunice Williams come back? And why would she not be redeemed and all like this? And finally, I just decided I wanted to find out who Eunice Williams was and why she was so important. Um, She... um, so I started doing research on her, and that led me into lots and lots of research. I had to do, uh, had to learn more about the Puritans. I had to learn more about the Iroquois Confederacy, in particular the Mohawks. Um, and I, what I finally realized was that everything I was reading, all the books, hundreds of articles, everything, were written by men. And I decided that somebody needed to give Eunice a voice as to why she refused to return, even though she was part of the Cotton Mather family. Her mother was a cousin to Cotton Mather, and she was a part of the prominent Puritan City on the Hill group. So it was a blow to them, the Puritans, that she would refuse to turn return. 
And how how young was she when she went with them? When she was seven years, away? seven years old. Seven. Yes. Wow. And and how I read this in your book, but how long after that did they first have the opportunity to? Well, she had the opportunity to refuse to return. How old was she then, or do you know? Uh, well, it, it was a number of times that they kept imploring her. Um, different people would come up from Massachusetts. Uh, John Schuyler was one in particular who came a number of times, even into her adulthood, and tried to persuade her to come back. Um, so I, as far as I can tell, the first time was probably around nine or ten years old. That's what I found extra interesting. I knew it was kind of young for her to be uh, making that kind of a decision. But but I'd also read elsewhere that uh, if we captured Native Americans, they always wanted to go back. But a lot of times, if if whites were captured, they didn't want to come back. Yes, that was quite true. Some of the people did go back. There were 111 people, in addition to Eunice, who were taken from Deerfield at the time of the massacre and um, marched for two months up uh, through January and February into the, uh, to Montreal. Um, and some of those did choose to return, her father and, and older brother being two of them, but many of them chose not to return, both adults and children. This will come up, I guess, in your in the poem, so we probably don't need to, and if we need to talk about it ahead of time, about the elements of the culture that makes it reasonable, perhaps, that she would not want to return or not be enthusiastic about the idea of returning. Well, it seemed to me that it seemed to me it was pretty obvious. So I don't know why people for 300 years couldn't figure that out. <laughs> um, she was a, a, a female child in a very repressive society, uh, very limiting, very repressive. Um, and with the Native Americans, she was able to be expressive. She was able to run through the woods and that kind of thing, which she had never been allowed to do uh, as long as she was living in the stockade around Deerfield. Yeah. Well, would you like to read a, a little excerpt and then we'll talk a little bit and read some more back okay. and forth? Uh, the book's divided into three parts, the abduction, the marriage and the visitations. So I'm going to read uh, some from each of the parts. Great. Um, do you want me to say the numbers of the poems? Because it's one poem with just each little section is numbered. Um, whatever you think works. Okay. Ice and cold. My slippers soaked through. I stumble and fall. A tall redskin grabs me hard, swings me high to his chest. I cry out and kick at him. He holds me tight and sings low in his throat. I do not like the sound. A wolf growling in the forest. Where do they take me? I have never been from father's house. He and brother Stephen lag behind. Father's anger will be harsh for I am not allowed outside the palisade. And mm -hmm. then uh, one of the native people picks her up to carry her. Mm -hmm. I in the sway of his steps, I fall asleep. Dreams of fire, the crack of ax on wood, screams. Someone drags me from my bed in our flaming house. 
the stench of black smoke in my nostrils. Goodman Nims fights to save Henry and Mercy. Goodwife Stebbins wields an iron skillet, her nightcap askew, Indians with hatchets and knives. I must wake, must wake. Oh, baby Jerusa burns. So they're on the march um, toward Montreal. Mary Brooks' belly swells. She stumbles often and whimpers. For days we hear her. Now she slips backwards down an icy slope. Her Indian strikes one blow and leaves her with her child. A bloody mass spreads over white ground. The metallic odor drifts through the cold, sharp air. My father stands over them in prayer. He will help their souls fly to God as pure as fresh snow. For three days we wade this river. The Winooski, Samuel French says, the sound of many feet breaking through the crust cracks the silent forest. I ride high and dry on the Indian shoulders. Mary Harris rides close behind me. When I turn to look at her, she gives a small wave, then quickly hides her head. Today we reach a clump of bark houses where red people called Abenaki live. Children playing with a hoop and ball stop to look at us. Their fathers must be absent if they can play in mid-afternoon. My Indian hands me to a woman. She says strange words to me and smiles. I am afraid he will leave me here. How will I find my way home? The woman who smiles brings me warm clothes made of soft skins. The pungent smell twitches my nose. Father would have me cut off the fringes and beads as being of heathen nature. But my Indian might be angry if I did. The woman speaks long to me, points and smiles at the bright decorations. The moccasins too are fringed and come up almost to my knees. But father has not returned. I am here alone and must decide for myself. At dusk, the men play a game of kicking a leather ball the size of my yarn skein. The women sing and sway to the rhythm of their song. We children run among them, shrieking and squealing in the chase. Everyone laughs when one of us catches another. Laughter flows like a stream. The women dance in beaded dresses. The long fringes sway with one foot always touching Mother Earth. The men drum to Father Sky. My heartbeat answers in rhythm. Others move like bear, deer, eagle. This dancing brings a joy I do not feel in Father's church. Father and Stephen have rejoined us after their group's separate journey. They come to talk to me. Behind a pile of furs, some Indian children play and hide with me. We cover our mouths to stifle our laughter. Father's harsh voice declares my behavior unseemly. He scowls and walks away. Stephen looks sad. I want to run after them to unbutton their coats and set their laughter free. They've resumed their journey. I poke my head out of the bearskin wrap. The moon shines bright as day. 
Stars swirl in the wild white sky. Never have I seen such brightness in Deerfield. But there we never sleep outside for fear the devil will see and bewitch us. Father says the devil lurks all around us. He must not like long marches for he is not here this night. The Hurons want to kill my father in exchange for the death of their chief. He burned in his own fire at Deerfield. But good chief Thanaphosen argues and wins my father's life. Father comes to say he prepares to return home. He speaks of honoring the blood ties between us. He will raise money to redeem me. I know father expects me to say words to him. He loves me, I think, but he does not let me sing. The governor in Montreal and father attempt to trade an Indian girl for my release. They make me angry with their fuss about nothing. I do not need this release. I dance in my red flowered dress. She was given a red flowered dress by the French family that uh, uh -huh. she was given to when they reached Montreal. Hmm. Okay, uh, the next section is the marriage. Yeah. Well, on that first section, it's, it's really interesting um, the way you bring it in without making a big deal of it, but uh, the, the obvious contrast of the freedom versus repression and that even, even having fringe and beads on your clothing is excessive and you know you're you're the pawn of the devil or something right. you know yeah yeah and, they had uh, strange ideas those puritans <laughs> and certainly no dancing and, and no singing mm -hmm. her dad loves her but he won't let her sing put a lot of research in this it's inter it's interesting those kind of details of, of what the clothing was and that even a, a little thing that just stuck out of me the fringe and the beads is considered a big transgression by the really puritanical uh, father. Shall I continue? Sure. Seven years ago, I rode Hatteranta's back on the long march through ice and snow. Home na is now Kahnawaga at the rapids. Water roars over broad boulders day and night in a furious dance. I whirl round and round and run along the bank to catch its tune. Outside the palisade, Fields grow rich with corn, melons, sunflowers. Women own the land. They farm and decide which man will be chief. The mission church stands on the highest ridge. It is the only place women bow their heads. In Deerfield, I remember the women's heads always covered, always bowed. My mother, who rarely smiled. I uh, attended Sacred Circle at uh, Omega Institute a number of times, mm -hmm. and um, there were always uh, different Native Americans from around the U.S. and Canada. Um, and the uh, part about the chief, the women deciding which would be chief, and they also tell him what to do. So I, that was confirmed both by some <laughs> clan, clan mothers yeah. and by uh, some chiefs that I met. And that image of the of the heads always down just took me right into Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. she said everything everything in that actually happened someplace, sometime. It was some and group of people. 
yeah, some group of people actually did whatever atrocious thing you're seeing in, in Handmaid's Tale, somebody did it somewhere. Right, right. Wow. The women in my lodge say my blood has flowed many seasons and it is past time to wed. I am 15. I will not let him be chosen for me. They say he must be from outside our clan, yet not from Nisikol's husband's house. When I wed, I will own my land and my fire as do other women. And my husband will reside in my house, not his mother's. They cannot make me do otherwise. And in the Mohawk tradition, the, um, the man lives in his sister's or his mother's house and he raises his nieces and nephews, whereas the woman, her brother comes and lives with her and raises her children. Hmm. So she refuses to go along with that. Yeah. John Schuyler comes from Albany, I am told expressly for me. I do not wish to see him. I tire of their pestering and will not speak. Two interpreters are needed, they think, English to French, French to Mohawk. He implores, begs, bribes. My beloved family longs for my return. A compromise. I should visit with guarantee of return if I choose. I remember some words, enough. The English treat me as though I've no mind of my own, as though because I do not speak, I am ignorant. My anger burns like hot steel in my breast. They think me stupid, that I do not know the savagery, that I did not see the Deerfielders killed along the march, my own mother fall beneath the hatchet. They think I do not know the savagery, how the English prize an Indian scalp. August 1729, my father is dead. His declaiming voice I chose not to hear, silenced at long last. My father's inheritance includes me. Sister Esther's husband, Reverend Joseph Meacham, receives her portion. The family do not know they do right in sending the money to me. They think to slight my husband. They cannot comprehend a place where women own the land and all the goods. Arasant caresses the swell of my belly, bends his ear to the rhythmical beats. His hand cups my breast, turgid with milk. With lips the softness of down, he kisses my nipple. The women tell me my time is near and instruct me in releasing my daughter from the depths of my being. Alone among the tall trees, I bite through the cord, wrap her in down, and return to the village. August 5th, 1736, our daughter's first baptism. Arasant holds her high to the night sky that she may know to reach for the stars. Her second in the wooden church by the priest. No stars, no moon, no sun to light her way. Only a man who will tell her to cover her head. A shame she will never earn. She is Catherine. She is flying leg, my sixth child, the first to survive. Okay, now this is the uh, third section, which are the visitations. How did you decide uh, that this was going to be done in poetry? 
curious. Because I wouldn't know how to write history. <laughs> I'm not a historian. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Poetry is what I write, you know, poetry is what I write. And I just felt that was the best way I could to, to put it in her voice. Uh -huh. um, I, I don't, um, I don't particularly like first person novels, you know, if I was going to make a, make a fictionalized version of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to put it in her voice because I had read, as I mentioned, all this research done. And the latest thing that I read was in 1995 or 96 was um, The Unredeemed Captive by John Demos, who's a professor at Yale University. So you can see that there's still a strong interest in her over 300 years wow. and yet he didn't come up with anything new either <laughs> so i just he was still quoting all the other things that all the other male writers had done um, and i just felt it was important to hear her if he's still around you should send him a copy of the book <laughs> yeah i don't know if he is or not um part three oh uh, yeah okay sometimes i remember my mother her face stern beneath her cap. She would have me bow, my head covered, and sit on the settle to read the Bible. Such memories are vague, but when they come, they make a stone of my heart. My daughters read the white-capped rapids in the river and know the messages in the clouds coloring the sky. August 27, 1740. John Schuyler persuades me to meet Stephen in Albany. He brings my mother, brother Eliza and brother-in-law Joseph. Children when we last parted, grown now to different beats of the heart. I drink courage from Arasant beside me. These men would devour me in what they think is love. Arasant urges. Finally, I agree, a four-day visit to Longmeadow. Longmeadow, Massachusetts is where her, her brother Stephen became the minister. Here the women, so in Longmeadow, here the women defer always to the men, their white caps nod in whatever agreement demanded of them. The ties of blood and childhood draw me to my English family, but I cannot live their way. I am accustomed to walking in my own path. I do not speak of it, for they would not understand. After three days we leave to seek sweet air and the pungency of pine forests. January 1765. My spirit, my heartbeat, my life is taken from me. Arosan is dead. For 52 years we dwelled within each other. How do I breathe without his love swaddling me? They wanted my father, but only I stayed. The French lost the city on the hill, but with me, they made their point just the same, perhaps better. My father would never have worn the cross. They were fools to think he would. Still, they do not comprehend the passion of the Puritan. Yes, passion, I dare use that word. Their dark clothes and hard benches do not suppress the trembling of their bodies. That's the last one I had marked to read. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's excellent because that's such a good ending <laughs> statement. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Also, oh. on that first visit to uh, Longmeadow, Jonathan Edwards mm -hmm. came over from um, Northampton, which is um, north of Longmeadow, <clears throat> to try to persuade her. He preached this fiery sermon and everything and to persuade her. And she just said, eh. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't go for any of it. <laughs> I just found her to be a really uh, intelligent and strong child and woman. Yeah. And it's fabulous that you did do this in her voice. So she's speaking, telling her own story. She also lived to be quite old. Wow. 89, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really doing it for, for that far back. <laughs> and um, Living healthy out in the woods. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, since uh, the Mohawks are matriarchal and matrilineal, um, the woman's name, last name is the one that goes through. So today, people living in Kahnawaga with the last name of Williams claim her as their ancestor. Whoa. <laughs> that is an interesting little uh, detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been really wonderful. I'm so glad we could connect. And, uh, and it's just nice people listen to this. It's like story hour. <laughs> <laughs> which is very cool and yeah. it's wonderful you've you've given uh, Eunice the opportunity to uh, to tell her life in in her own voice so thanks a lot well thank and you I appreciate it Charlie you're listening to Poetry Spoken Here I'm Charlie Rossiter and we've been visiting with Gail Lauridan from Albuquerque, New Mexico now, I'd like to turn to an essay that caused quite a stir when it was published back in 1991 in the Atlantic Monthly by Dana Joya called Can Poetry Matter? And what I thought was kind of interesting and specific that I could talk to you about is six suggestions he has that could be acted upon to make poetry become more a part of American public culture. And so let's take a look. Here's the first one. When poets give public readings, they should spend part of every program reciting other people's work. I don't think that's quite a norm these days, and it's an interesting notion. Joya claims that reading should be a celebration of poetry in general, not merely the author's published work. Second point. When arts administrators plan public readings, they should avoid the standard subculture format of poetry only. Should mix up the poetry with other arts, include music or dance or who knows what, and that that would just be a better, more interesting thing and be more appealing to the public. Point three. Poets should write more prose about poetry. Write articles for mass-market publications about poetry, and in that way, put poetry more in the public eye. Fourth, when you compile an anthology, it's basically the suggestion just really says, don't just put your friends in there. Putting a bunch of mediocre poetry by your pals and trying to promote certain viewpoints or certain poets or poetry styles is just not a good idea. Include only poems you genuinely admire. That's point number four. Point five. 
poetry teachers, especially at the high school and undergraduate level, should spend a lot less time on analysis and a lot more time on performance. Have students memorize, recite, and perform. Let them appreciate the oral aspect of the art. That's a very interesting suggestion, and I have no idea how much it's being acted upon right now because I'm not on a campus. But if you're on a campus, you could think about that. Would it be better? Would students come out of your class more appreciating poetry, more enthusiastic about it, more interested in having it part of their lives if they did more of reciting, memorizing, and performing? And finally, and this is something I think we're making progress on, his sixth point is we should make more use of radio to expand arts audience. Interestingly enough, back in 1991, he had no idea the explosion of podcasts with the web that we would have. And I do think that the podcasts, like this one, are doing something positive for putting poetry in the culture. In fact, that is our goal, is doing this podcast. We spend our time doing it because we think more poetry out in society is good for the individual and is good for society. And so... We do it. We find poets that we think deserve a platform, and we give them a platform. So there you have it. A half dozen suggestions from an article almost 30 years ago that the author believes would put poetry more out there as a part of everyday society, everyday public culture. His goal is the idea that the normal educated person with some level of curiosity would find poetry more appealing, that it's not just a subculture, and so the professors and the poets can all talk to each other. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. We're so glad when you join us, and we're really even happier when you tell your friends and colleagues that we exist and urge them to follow us and listen to our podcast. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.